So, yeah, um, we're going to focus the discussion mostly on bar association, talk about labor in Trek and um, and that episode in particular and why it's meaningful. And I think it's a lot of really good opportunities for us to kind of unpack just labor movements that are happening around the country right now, especially with the IATSE stuff that's going on. Yeah, they got, we got IATSE, we got Nabisco, yeah. we got uh, the Tortilla Place, we got um, fucking Kellogg's just went off, we got John yeah. Deere, we got... Um, oh yeah, there's the, there's so much labor action happening right now, but anyway, so... The um, Factory, the guys that make yamak <laughs> sauce, everybody's <right>. on strike! <laughs> Attention, Bajoran workers! <laughs> Y'all can't sure. see me ecstatically shimmying over here because this is an audio medium, but I am so excited about the number of strikes that are currently happening and oh, that yeah. are on the verge of happening because this is the militant labor movement I've been hoping would happen for the last like 10 years. It's almost like all that shit lib stuff about how like, oh, the working class doesn't actually agree with leftists was a bunch of fucking shit lib bullshit. Yeah, almost. So well, the um, we want to class be damned. Will you ready to roll into this thing? I am. Heck yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. This is Gay Space Communism, your favorite leftist Star Trek debacle, and the only podcast that has been really hung over on Yamak Sauce, which is not a liquor, so we don't really understand how that worked. Anyway, I'm Paul Byron, and my co-hosts are... Hey, y'all, I'm Amy. <laughs> hey, this is Corey. And Rachel's muted. God damn it. Hello, <laughs> it's Rachel. <laughs> Then today joining us, he's not just a hero. He's a union man. <laughs> Will, it's always a joy to have you back. The Star Trek communist, your, your hero. It's always great to talk to you. You wanted to come back on the show for whatever reason. And we love that about you and your patience with our nonsense. Um, uh, it's not nonsense. I mean, it's in the title of your podcast. So how could I not be on your show? Yeah. There you go. Okay, well, no one at NASA has called us, so we've been reaching, we've got <laughs> some contacts from the communist community, and we've had some of uh, the gay community has been here also, but the spacemen have not contacted, con you get it. Anyway, yeah. uh, let's, get, let's get rolling. <laughs> uh, Rachel, what was the horrible name you came up for the thing where we talk about what we've been watching? What? Oh, I tried calling it Captain's Log, but then you said it was something worse, and then I've forgotten what that is. <laughs> anyway, it's Captain's Log until Rachel comes up with what the better, worse name is. What have y'all been watching on uh, cartoons lately? We've got active Star Trek, but we're also, you know, like, yeah, there's also everything else about space that's on TV. Go. Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm getting caught up. I'm, I got a few episodes behind on Lower Deck, so I'm I'm still like haven't watched the last like two episodes, I think. But otherwise, I'm pretty much up to speed. I'm still I'm still going through my chronological viewing, but because I'm at that point in the chronological where I'm I'm at Lower Decks and I'm watching that as it comes out, I've been kind of going back and watching other stuff. So for some random reason, I decided to go back and start rewatching some Voyager recently, and I'm having some fun with that. Some new observations. Where are you? Where did you drop? Uh, in you got your 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 cast, your seven of nine, your yeah. Yeah, towards the end of the second season, I just had that episode where the doctor had his holographic family that was horrifying and, and Worst just what dad a, ever. Well, but I got to say this about my man Robert Picardo. So for those of you who don't know, um, my dad passed away unexpectedly a little over a month ago, and my husband did something very sweet. He got a video recorded by Robert Picardo um, as a tribute to me, and it was incredibly uh, moving. Mm. And he he recorded this like two minute long video where he was talking about how his father passed away when he was young, his mother passed away when he was working on Voyager, and he talked about the specific episode that he was recording in season two when that hit, 
had happened and he had to leave the set to go to his mother's funeral. He's very close to his mother. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful video that he sent. And the episode that he was recording happened to be a doctor-centric episode. It was one where he met the Vidian doctor that he treated. And the first scene that he had to re uh, record when he came back from his mother's funeral while he was still grief-stricken was the one where he said, by the way, I have some feelings for you. And I'm just wondering if you feel the same way. <laughs> was that Phage? Was that the episode Phage? Yes, that was that one. Um, it's, it's such a good one. It is. It's it's one of my favorite episodes of Voyager, and I just have a whole new reason to love it now. And Robert Picardo is a beautiful human being. So, also just to say, Corey, today's lower decks is really good. Like I always oh, say that every week, but this week's <laughs> is particularly outstanding. So, yeah, something to look forward to. I'm excited. I can't wait. Listeners can muddle through and figure out what day we're recording based on that themselves. <laughs> Ah, uh, next on the uh, who else been watching cartoons? I will, I will go. I am still trapped inside of One Piece. It is about friendship and it is anti-capitalist and it is about people on a boat. I say it fucking counts. It's super long. It's super good. All the episodes are like ten minutes long, so you do really have to like make judicious use of the scroll button. But I'm really enjoying it. Uh, a friend of mine got me hooked on it, and I'm there is a reason it has been being made for twenty years, and it is there's more of it than there is of Batman. So I don't know if someone's been like getting a One Piece, just do it. It's actually kind of fun. Anyway, that's me. I have been participating in a Halloween movie fest, uh, a couple movies a night, and I have to say, like, it's mostly just been discovering all the movies and types of movies I can't watch anymore now that I've come out. Like, I just don't know if, like, I don't have any armor anymore, and I'll get some armor later, but, like... Can you wait? Wait. Can you do... give us like yeah? Give us give us some meat okay, here. Okay, I've watched serial killer movies. We watched some Amityville horrors. We watched some of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Those all um, are very weird. In the like coming back to those, it'll like Rocky Horror Picture Show. That weird freaking um sopranos movie Rocky Horror picture show is trapped and it is a product of its own moment though and the only movie i haven't had to leave the room at some point for so far has been uh ginger snaps <laughs> i don't even know what that is Never oh my god that. oh it's 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 a funnily enough it's a metaphor for um getting your period <laughs> <laughs> i get it well that sounds like a lovely time <laughs> yeah oh uh, yeah so that's me <laughs> And that's a horror movie. Is that what you said? Oh, it's also about uh, werewolves. <laughs> Naturally. Sure. Of course. Having your period can feel like having a werewolf tear out your abdomen. So It is I'll, monthly. I'll that. So <laughs> that happens. Metaphors. I thought everybody just knew that like werewolves were about menses. Like the yonic imagery there is not subtle. I have never put a silver. Oh, wait, I have put a silver bullet on it and it did solve it anyway. Uh -huh. But also Ginger Snaps serves as a great like sort of metaphor for going through like the wrong puberty the first time you know sort of being taken over and controlled by the wrong endocrine balance hmm. gender's broken send it back yeah you know gender can fuck right off it is mediocre at best i know some people very much like their gender and that's fine you can keep your gender if you like it i don't i refuse it gender is bad for me Actually, recently I've uh, I've I've gotten sort of more on in your camp, Rachel. Like I've kind of like you know I always thought like being binary trans was bullshit, but I don't even real really feel I feel more gender queer these days. But I feel very much transsexual. Right. Yeah. I mean, gender is a moving target. I think. I think everybody. Turns out a lot of these things are just words, you know. Yeah. Right. And hey, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Before we get too far off into a completely different topic that the show is not technically about today, Will, what have you been watching? 
Would it surprise anyone that I'm just rewatching Star Trek again? <laughs> no, it would shock all of us because many of us were watching, relying on streaming services to watch Star Trek. And now Paramount Plus has pulled them all except for a few items. But yeah, largely, no, we're at, I'm kind of in a dearth right now. So it's sad. I'm fine. But like, yeah. Will, please go on. You've been rewatching Star Trek. That's awesome. Yeah, but I'm actually not rewatching Star Trek episodes per se. I've been watching old, because I've been feeling very nostalgic lately, I've been watching cutscenes from old Star Trek computer games and they on youtube they all cut it all together into like oh, yeah. let's have a movie so like you know because a be bunch like of that app. shit is canon because it's the only time stuff is addressed yeah yeah and a lot of the early 90s or late 90s stuff like some of them were still full motion video so like starfleet academy they actually hired actors to like act out stuff they brought on like george decay and william shatner to do legit cameos reprise their roles i mean they eventually stopped so then you got you know that really you know crappy but it was still awesome for the time like visual effects but it's been fun watching that because i'm weird like that where i just like instead of playing a game i'll just watch a youtube compilation of the cutscenes from like 1997 and it's weirdly soothing and it's actually some pretty good stories in there guys Honestly, this is a great idea because gameplay in 1996 was agonizing. It was. It was. And sometimes that's why you play the game. You just want to see the story now. But now fast forward to 2021, I don't need to play this game in order to watch the story. Somebody speed ran it and they have all the scenes. Exactly. So I can just watch it as a movie. And like, I actually really like doing that because it's a way to for me to play games without actually having to play them. Slash when I was a kid, I couldn't buy all these games. So I was like, oh, how did, you know, Star Trek Away Team end. I don't know. How did Star Trek Starfleet Command 3 end? Like, I didn't know. I never knew. But now I know because I can just pull it up on YouTube. So it's great. Bad news for the away team. <laughs> it's really interesting that, that you bring that up because, um, so I'm not a gamer, but my husband is. And a couple of the games that he's really big into are games that I like enjoy participating in, like just sitting and watching him play. Like the, the big ones of, you know, think of the Mass Effect franchise and Witcher 3 in particular. I just love watching the story. I just think it's fascinating. And I enjoy just kind of sitting there watching while he plays. I wonder, like, I might be into that too. I'm going to have to check some of those out. Be uh, interested to see like how some of those play because I've never played any Star Trek games at all and I kind of wonder I don't know if it's even possible to still play some of these games but if it is it would be kind of fun to bring back Troy and like maybe we do like a, a stream where we uh, where we play and watch oh and no I would commentary. be happy to talk more about Star Trek Klingon the Galron Klingon simulator oh, that's so good. Exactly. exactly that's another classic example of great live action they got Robert O'Reilly plays Galron Q they got John Lansky to, to play to play his John role Lansky. on board Wow. Like, and he literally just filmed on the sets there. And it was like one of those, uh, you know, it comes in like four CD ROMs and it's like two hours worth of gameplay. But like that was cutting edge back in like, you know, Windows 95. So there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped in there. It turns out if you want to get like video gamers en masse in 1996, hi, this video game is about Star Trek. Really would just fucking nail it to the wall. You know, like, doesn't matter how bad they are. It's like, oh, a start. Yeah, I have a computer that will do that. It's 1994. Yeah, I have like, fucking, ooh, it's neat. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's a very cool. Any, yeah, favorite canon highlight out of this new material? 
Oh man, that's oh, that's so tough because there's actually some really good stuff. So they got Christopher Plummer to reprise the role as General Chang. They got blank. I'm, I'm I'm blanking on his name, but who 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 plays um, Cancer Gorgon? He also plays Gold Madrid. Oh, David Warner. So they did like a prequel to the Undiscovered Country called Klingon Academy, and that's just playing from the Klingon perspective. I think that's probably you know top of my list. There's also a shooter called Star Trek Voyager Elite Force, who's based off the Quake engine. So it was like it was very much a shooter, but it was also surprisingly a very good Voyager story so like that's my canon i think it's from elite force is that the entire storyline from that video game is actually for me like that's like a really good voyager episode because it was written and scripted to be like a voyager episode this is like a 1990 like eight and they, they got the entire cast to do it including like the captain on down so i think probably elite force was like sure, the they're all Dex. in a room every week yeah you can just exactly. like, hey, record right. read these lines into a thing and they're like sure yeah. what, here's, here's four hundred dollars just read the thing yeah. So I think I'd say Elite Force is like Lower Decks before Lower Decks was even a thing because they're all Lower Decks. You play this huh. special away team called the Hazard Team that Tuvok assembles to deal with unique threats in Delta Quadrant. It's supposed to be the premise for a shooter, but surprisingly, it actually really works as a legit Star Trek story. So that's probably my number one. That does not sound like an away team that I want to be a part of. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, but it sounds like an away team I want on the fucking ship. Sorry, team. Like, you know, yeah. it's it sound too militaristic, but Vanguard party. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, cool. This wraps up the name of the segment that this is. Uh, let's Lies. move forward because Lies. we had... Because Will... I've been watching Squid Game. Oh, shit. You've been watching right. Squid Game? Okay, everybody's talking about this this freaking show. Like, what is is it worth it? It seems to have well, jumpsuits. So, is that true? First of all, let it be known that I compulsively binge watch K-dramas on Netflix all of the time. So I fully expected Squid Game to be another show that I watched that nobody else ever watched and that I loved and nobody was willing to talk to me about and I was weird for liking. So this one has been strange for me because I binge watched this in like a weekend while I was working on some like visual design stuff or whatever. It's great. I liked it. I thought it was a really excellent like battle royale style show the weird sort of jigsaw style deaths were interesting but also like at the core of it there was kind of a conversation about money and poverty and the kinds of ethical compromises you're forced to make within capitalism and i thought that part was off too that's the first time hearing of any of this yeah yeah so show good i liked it okay i'm gonna check it out then people didn't super like the ending i liked the ending i thought it was fine I anticipate seeing a lot of costumes for it based on what the images that I have encountered online so far. It feels like it'll be a Dragon Con heavy, so I should probably at least know what the fuck is going on so I can get people's references at worst. They do have some wild masks. Masks are in forever now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, moving on to lighter and more exciting topics. Will, you wanted to come talk to us about a very specific episode, which if depending on what made it into the top of the show is pretty near and dear to uh, a lot of people's hearts and a timely one. It is Bar Association. The first time a Ferengi gets access to Karl Marx and it blows his fucking mind. Yeah, you wanted to talk about this for obvious reasons, but let's do it. Yeah. Where do you want to start? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great episode, obviously, for, for obvious reasons. I remember hearing that line. I mean, this is going to be chock full of spoilers, and I'll probably jump, you know, Actually, all wait, the let's, place. let's stop. It's a 30-year-old episode of television. The B-plot of this episode of television is that Rom is mad, and it sucks to work <laughs> at Quarks. He gets everyone who works at Quarks to fucking form a union and stop. O'Brien says the beautiful line, he's not just a hero, he's a union man. As I introduced our guest today, it's a fucking solid banger, and he gives him the communist 
manifesto and encourages him to do a wildcat strike at Quarks. He does that. It pisses off the FCA so bad brunt. Jeffrey Combs episode, everybody, comes on down and they just, yeah, they have a big labor struggle. Quark loses. It's awesome. As the boss should. Yeah, there's a there's space shit that also happens, and we can get into that too, but that's the meat. If you haven't watched this episode of Star Trek, I'm sorry I just spoiled it for you. Go watch it anyway. It's cooler than what I described. Will, please begin. <laughs> well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Well, spoilers be damned, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 it, it works. That's the thing about Deep Space Nine. I think and I think Lower Decks is in a lot of ways its successor in a lot of how it balances kind of a longer story arc with you know more episodic storytelling and fun, lighthearted stuff. And Bar Association is that type of episode where like it was clearly designed to be a little bit more lighthearted because the Ferengi are always considered even in a more serious show like Deep Space Nine, which them more seriously. You know, the Ferengi are always going to be the lighter, more comedic episodes. Although this in a lot of ways actually ages the best out of a lot of the other series because of what they did to the Ferengi added so much texture so much layers so much depth to them but also I think struck that balance between light and dark really well between episodic and more serialized really well as I think Deep Space Nine has incredible rewatchable uh, rewatchability but this is one of those things where you get a, a slice of life Episode, right? You can kind of see the fact that uh, Rom is having a, a you know an ear infection in his lobes, right? And doesn't have any sick time whatsoever. Quark is so capricious and so just a, a gigantic asshole to him in the beginning because that's all for a guard. That's how they treat their family, right? And it is a good way to kind of reintroduce the concept of labor and labor power as it exists in the 24th century, right? Because again, where DJ Science excels is it is decidedly a non-Federation, non-Starfleet perspective. So Quark's bar is, is not a Federation starship. So you can have more of the more recognizable labor forms, right? Like, you know, they are clearly exploited there. They don't have their concerns about sick time, sick leave. Like that never came up on board a Federation starship before. You just assume that if you're sick, you just, you know, you go get treated, right? All those types of stuff. And the working at Quark's is more like working at a real bar than anything else at Star Trek is like... Like anything else that happens. Well, and that's what makes this in, this particular episode is so poignant for this specific moment in time for a couple of reasons. One being that the, the genesis of the labor struggle in this episode begins because Rom is sick and Quark won't give him time off. He doesn't have paid sick leave. So that was the whole thing that kicked all of this off is, is Rom's in the, the, the infirmary trying to get treatment and Julian's trying to tell him you need to take time off and he's saying, I can't do it. I've, you know, I, I'm not allowed to have time off. And that's what begins the entire conversation which is particularly timely at this moment because just this week over 90% of the the members of IATSE it's the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees and this is the union that represents the crews of all of film and television they just 90% of their membership voted 98% in favor to authorize a strike which uh, has not gone into effect yet but is is pending potentially. No because you have to vote to say you're going to go on strike before you can legally threaten to strike because this country is stupid. Yeah, exactly. But they now have overwhelming authorization to strike. And the reason why they are potentially going to be going on strike is exactly because of how they have been treated throughout the course of this pandemic, that they have been worked these insane hours, 16, 18, 20 hour days, no sick leave, not getting adequate uh, rest during the time. But, you know, it's it's very relevant to like what's happening right now. Um, There's a lot of other labor movements that are in very similar position, but specific to like the kinds of people that are helping to make these shows that we enjoy are 
we're going through exactly what happened in this episode. Well, it speaks to actually what Rachel's love of Squid Game, right? Like it was an obscure cape drama show that would have been her and hers alone. But we are now, so we've watched all the television. We were inside for almost two years and we watched all of the fucking TV. So they are starving for it and making it has not been possible until recently. And like where we live, this we're a big town, Atlanta, it's a big town for this. We got a lot of people around here. They are all back to work and it has always been 12 to 14 to 16 hour days for those crews. But now it's like, oh, yep. right. You you fucking need this because there is no more TV. Y'all motherfuckers are so desperate you're willing to talk to me about my deep cut neurodivergent shit. That's what Paul's trying to say. Well, it's weird. <laughs> and when there's only th there's even new Star Trek coming out right now. And yeah. there's like there's yeah. still like they're trying to make content so fast that it is breaking these folks. And like they're like, oh yeah, hey, y'all yeah. want all these Emily. Anyway, so well, and you know, I was talking to some Yahtzee people about like the strike vote and everything. And one of the things they pointed out to me is like, yeah, we're working 18 hours a day on a show that every single one of us knows is trash. Like it wouldn't be okay if we were working on something that was actually artful, but this is somebody's vanity project. There's no reason it needs to happen this quickly. And I think that's such a perfect microcosm of like so much of really just industry as such under capitalism, right? Like it's go faster, faster, faster. We've reached the point now where it's like, why? Yeah. Well, especially now with, with content coming out on streaming services and the, there's a big disparity in how the crews are paid that work on streaming services shows versus shows that, you know, cross over both traditional television and streaming. And, and that's that's really kind of the heart of the potential strike that's taking place. And that's all Star Trek right now. That's part probably mm -hmm. that may have weighed into the decision not to put it on broadcast, which I always found was a mistake, because if you put it on after the news, people will watch it and then you will hook a whole new generation on Star Trek. Yeah, Rachel, just to jump on that point real quick, I think sometimes what's lost when we talk about capitalism, we talk about socialism, we talk about communism too, is it sometimes, you know, economics obviously plays a huge role. You know, the class struggle obviously is a determining question about the productive forces too, but oftentimes it's it's only labeled in terms of dollars and cents, right? The, you know, the productive forces, right? When in reality, when we talk about a better world as possible, when we talk about socialism and people actually having control over their lives, that extends to culture, that extends to society. Right. So our culture and our society and the things that we make in terms of our culture, music, art, literature, it would exponentially grow and be better because it's not trapped behind stakeholder profits or short term profits. Right. We just create things using all of the technology that we have, using those, you know, red cameras that we you know, those really high definition cameras, using the full productive capabilities of these multi-billion dollar films. But instead of, you know, cranking out yet another Avengers happy movie, yeah. it's, used, it's used to actually develop things that are actually creative and not designed just to create just another franchise of a franchise. Imagine if you and your friends could go to the library and rent a $35,000 camera. Like, that would be incredible. That would be so cool. I don't know if we'll ever get quite to that point where things that expensive are just getting handed out to newbies, but who knows, maybe. Well, there's something in video gaming right now that is like, I want cheaper games, lower quality by people who are better paid and fewer of them, right? Like the AAA environment yeah. is not the place where the best stuff happens, is I guess the Absolutely idea there. I don't know not, whether I yeah. buy into I, I enjoy Breath of the Wild as much as anybody, but there are lots of games I've paid less for where the people who made it got more of that money. Actually, to be fair, I haven't enjoyed a AAA game in like three or four years. Well, and a fun fact about Breath of the Wild, actually, is they did not do crunch for that one. They actually, uh, Breath of the Wild was remarkable because the labor conditions behind it were, like, decent. Like, no, it's going to take 10 years because we're only going to work 40 hours a week. Sorry. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. And I, you know, they also hired way more people and they got it out in a reasonable amount of time by spending money. And now it's like one of the best selling games ever, right? Because it's amazing. It's this visionary thing. And I think, you know, like to what Will was saying, when we democratize creativity, much cooler things happen, right? When we empower people to make the things they want to make. And you can kind of see that in like the Breath of the Wild formula or even in this new game that just came out, there's a Nickelodeon Super Smash Brothers knockoff thing kind of going on that's very cool. Um, and it was made by a small indie studio. And when people make things for the love of making the thing, they're better. It's amazing what you can do when you're alienated from the product of your labor, let alone alienated from uh, the value that you, you create, right? But just literally amazing. I mean, it, it's one of those things where capitalism will literally produce its own grave digger, but it, it won't do it by itself. It's just like a zombie mover. You have to consciously put it out of its misery, but the conditions are there for you to do it, right? So that kind of goes back to the labor question, right? Is is this is episode of, of this is the conditions create this circumstance circumstance, right? Like Corey mentioned, the lack of paid sick leave, he literally collapses, Rom collapses there. Those are conditions, right? But if Rom wasn't able to play the, what I would, as a Marxist, I would call the, the subjective factor. It, the subjective factor is the leadership, the conscious awareness that not only things are bad, that things can change and that I, in addition with others, can play a conscious role in shaping the objective conditions of which this is now possible, right? So that's why he got Lida and he got, was able to convince like all the other Ferengi waiters who, you know, are also mm -hmm. just kind of like, you know, they see it, but they're just like, yeah, whatever. We're going to be the oppressors one day. So we don't need to do anything. And he was able to convince them. Yeah, I mean, they, they did a lot with addressing how big of a leap it was for them to like abandon their operating philosophy and get behind the strike. They were reluctant participants at first, but then they got into it. But one of the things that's really interesting to me about this episode is in particular the way like we see the way everybody else in the main cast like falls into these very specific roles, like the allies, um, the people that are supportive of the strike, the people that are, you know, that cross the picket line, the way that Odo interacts as local law enforcement, I think is, is all really interesting stuff to unpack and, and think about in the way that we should engage with labor movements, whether or not we are part of a particular union or any union at all ourselves and how we can be supportive. One of the like treats I love to give myself is just like Rachel Snackies is Fruit Loop cereal. And we had just bought a box right before the strike started. And so now I'm like pouring these teeny tiny bowls. Like I got to make this last. <laughs> okay, You know, the shit in the bag at the end of the aisle is the same cereal. Yeah, and I'm probably going to end up doing that if we need more before the strike is over. But it's, you I'm know, the, it's the premise of it. Like, there are things from all of these factories that I have enjoyed that I've been, like, willingly putting down, you know? Because at the end of the day, I would never eat another Fruit Loop. I would never eat another Oreo. Like, I would happily let those go if it meant that we had an equitable system, you know? It's important to find solidarity in that way. Which is, is something for us to think about, you know, as people who love a television show and and watch it somewhat obsessively, is uh, if this IATSE strike does go forward, one of the things that they are asking us to do as allies is to cancel our subscriptions to streaming services. And that is going to hurt. But I will do it. If they go on strike, I will do it and maintain that until after the they get what they need and get that resolved. Oh boy. Yeah. Gay space communism encourages that behavior. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. We will talk about something else entirely for a couple months. I don't care. We'll talk about yeah. the books we're reading. It'll be fine. Like, we'll talk about the things we did when we went outside. Let's do a Star Trek novels winter. 
Like seriously, Star oh, Trek no, novels. I actually winter. have something oh, yeah. for exactly this already that I kind of wanted to bring out, and we'll talk more about later. But it's trading cards. Like so, before everything was always all on the cloud and or in your drive because you pirated it. They novelized. Every, like I read a book of novelized Twilight Zone plots as a child, just some points because it was in my house. But like that was the la if you did not see it syndicated again, this is what you'd get of it. Trading cards that describe various concepts episodes and characters that was your access to this our ability to parse all this is so brand new and wild and like the production of those things is not necessarily I mean, like it is all still part of the franchising machine but we have a different environment for playing with this these ideas too because now you can do it on forums you can do it on twitter you can make memes instead yeah. of just go to cons and have a weird costume although i still encourage people to present to talk with people about stuff and i think that does make a huge difference can i tell y'all on a side story that i found out this is just amazing so you know about N nfts right yeah yes them newfangled tulips i recently found out there's some nft like trading card group thing where they have like monkeys or like apes i guess they're apes and the first yeah, one people want me i'm on the internet too i'm one of them yeah yeah, well, so like, and I found out about this because my partner watches all of the worst things on the internet, but I found out. So the first time they were betrayed by the guy with the monkey NFTs, they kept going and got a whole new set of ape playing cards. I think it's great apes or something is what they're calling it. Uh, and then that person ran off with their money. And then there we are, these people being tricked twice, not just by NFTs, but by monkey themed trading card NFTs in the forums talking about how they just got to hold on and stay strong as a community. And it's okay because they actually got the monkey pictures this time. So it doesn't, you know, they didn't technically break the law. And it's like, I just like, I know this has nothing to do with the immediate topic, but holy shit. Like this No, is it absolutely does. We can bring it back home because this is what capitalism ultimately produces a system of grifts about how much richer I can make you over nothing. Yeah. I mean well None of it means anything. It's about what class you were born into. And it's all these like upper middle class white guys who were like praying at this like cargo cult of the NFT monkey cards. Like, I mean, did their, did their mothers click save as for them their whole lives or something? Right? But like, so like, okay, speaking of right click, he had a whole data pad of communist manifesto over. That's it. Oh, like that's, a, I mean, it's a big, it's a normal size book here now in the 21st century. We cut up trees and shit still, but like whole day, that's a big data pad. You just carry that around though. You look like, uh, what's your name? Dressed like a, dressed up in Dune. Your briefcase kid. Rom is oh, the briefcase kid. No, no. I think he's referring to uh, whatever her face is that just broke up with Elon Musk. Never yeah. mind. Let's move on. We don't care anymore. It is the yeah. biggest publicity communist manifesto got this week, which was very weird. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, whatever. Grimes. So it's a push. Like, it's a push to get Realm War unionized. Never mind. Yeah, we, okay. we all agree this is one of the best episodes of DS9, I think. But, Will, you often talk about how DS9 is... Well, you said until Lower Decks that DS9 was the most Marxist of all the Treks. And I think this episode is certainly central to that theory. Do you want to expand what? on that Why? more? Yeah, I think I think because, I mean, for obvious reasons, you know, the manifesto... The literal textual text, sure. 
the, you know, the, the, that famous line, workers of the world unite, you like to lose but your chains. And the way that that scene has played out, it was deliberate. You know, they, the writers, I always forget their names, but you know, they deliberately put it in. The episode was directed by LeVar Burton, who, you know, has talked about socialism, although, you know, I think he has a very, everyone has their own definition of socialism, but the fact that he was talking about socialism in a positive way lately, uh, Gates McFadden's podcast, I think kind of shows you where his sympathies have lied. And I think the fact that there are even any type of labor struggle in the future is relevant. You know, they talk about organizing workers. I think those are all the, the building blocks of what Marxism is about. Although, you know, it's it's also contradictory in the sense that it's the most Marxist, but sometimes unintentionally so. It doesn't actually have an ultimate revolutionary conclusion to it, although it raises some very good questions. And that's still more than a lot of what other Star Treks do, because I think sometimes what Next Generation does, it just assumes certain things. It just kind of hand waves it away. Whereas this kind of shows you that there's a process of struggle. There's a process of a conscious element that plays a factor in achieving better outcomes, right? Whereas a lot of what TNG is, it's just like, well, we just outgrew our infancy. You know, yeah. we we are we're more enlightened. It is we have evolved. <laughs> Yeah. We've evolved. And on, on some level, it is more explicit about, you know, the fact that we don't use money and we're a new society. So those are all good things. Don't get me wrong. I think Next Generation set that mold to do it. Or Roddenberry was really unchained to kind of really do what he needed, wanted to do, at least in the early seasons. But it is what is, maybe some of your listeners have read, what Engels had wrote in Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific. It's very much a utopian form of socialism that kind of bleeds through a lot of Next Gen and um, that universe is that we just, we just want a better world. We just got to be better people about it we just got to talk to each other about it we just got to just think about it and if we and if we work hard enough on ourselves we can set a better example and that somehow will get to that better utopian world and that is as Engels wrote back in the day and it's still true it's a very utopian form it doesn't show you the actual way to get there and the fact that it is something that people think about and uh, hope for as a distant horizon shows you that that yearning for a better world a better society is universal but that in and of itself is not enough there needs to be a, a, a way forward to actually move society to another level to another stage and that's what he talked about when he wrote about scientific socialism which is looking at history in the same way they look at the natural world or natural science? Are there laws that you can observe from it? Are there general rules that you can observe how society, human interactions work? Absolutely. That's what historical materialism, that's what Marxism is. Understanding that the development of society is actually the development of the productive forces. And that's how society is developed. And who controls those productive forces, who determines who gets the surplus, is in fact how actually society develops. And so the DS9, you know, I don't think they sat down like, let's do this you know, uh, in this decidedly Marxist way. But it shows you that there's a struggle. There's a struggle at Cork's Bar. There's a struggle on Bajor against the Cardassian occupiers. There's a struggle of the Maquis against the Federation bureaucracy. It's a struggle. And there, there are contradictory forces at play. I think that brings up really good questions. I think other Star Treks don't do. And I think that's why Deep Space Nine broaches questions that can be interpreted by a Marxist, can be interpreted by a communist, although it can be interpreted in other ways too. And I think obviously this episode, in addition to like far beyond the stars you know uh, past tense all of those lend themselves to that analysis if you choose to do it and it's really easy to do it because it poses the question from a perspective of struggle and resolving those contradictions
I want to push back a little bit, though. I agree with you, of course, that modeling struggle is really important and creating models of struggle for people to build their own behavior on is really important. But I also think the utopian stuff is important. You know, like when the next generation came out, they were not intending to create the iPhone, right? But the iPhone happened because somebody, you know, Steve Jobs was watching Star Trek and went, oh, touchscreens, that's such a cool idea, right? And I, I think that modeling that utopia is still useful. And I think- Oh, yeah things we should do and I, you know you were talking about sort of historical science right and looking at past patterns one of the other things we do with living science right with modern ongoing science is trying new things and testing them right and seeing like okay well how do we get there what what sort of experimental changes can we make and see if they work you know and so i think projecting that forward requires a vision of utopia you know, of an idea of an end state that we want to reach that we can sort of work backwards from. And I also think, you know, Deep Space Nine does offer that, obviously, in, in the ways that it puts directly these sort of utopian forces or, you know, quote unquote utopian, right? The Federation has its problems directly next to these very fascist forces. I think it, it does create sort of ways we can project forward and anticipate the kinds of changes we will need to make socially and culturally to be able to withstand fascism. Right. Does that make sense? It does. It absolutely does make sense. And I think, yeah, that's no way saying that Star Trek has to or should abandon its optimism. That's the whole point. The whole point of it is that its natural setting poses all these good questions. And sometimes that is enough in and of itself. And I think that's what makes it a durable enough franchise that lasts 55 plus years. It's gone through how many iterations? Like 800. We just recently passed 800 episode mark, including movies, right? Which is kind of, you know, wild when you think about it. Like it's it's really mind blowing. Like this franchise is still going, and yet there is still a through line. There's a theme that kind of holds it all together. Although there are some really wild iterations out there, which is good. That's the whole point: is that it can go through those types of changes. And I I think for me, what makes DS9 the most enduring and the most interesting trek is specifically because it really showcases that conflict between the idealized, the utopia, and what we're still trying to emerge from right now. I definitely, I love the utopian aspect of Star Trek. It's the reason why we started this podcast. This is the future that we want. But I think it's relevant to see that that is, it's not going to be something that one day we achieve that and then congratulations we won it's over it's going to be an ongoing struggle to maintain it because there will always be people who will be trying to dismantle that in some way and so i I think because deep space nine kind of explores like those points of friction where the utopia bumps up against these other realities that's what makes it so engaging to me so are we the is that like where we fall in our sort of like spectrum of utopian federation to dystopian Cardassian? Uh, re- I think we're closer to Cardassians right now, to be honest. I with don't want to give us credit. <laughs> I told you I was a Borg. <laughs> But I think we're getting at, you know, what makes these certain episodes, well, that you're naming special. And it's, it's like uh, Star Trek does not do a good job at addressing how power structures are going to have to fundamentally change if we're going to get where we want to be. And West Wing for Communists, you know, it's hard to address that and still be West Wing for Communists most of the time. And Far Beyond the Stars and this one and, you know, just those those few special episodes, especially in DS9, really address power in a way that they usually avoid. No, I think part of it, honestly, is that power is stupid. 
It's so capricious and petty. Politics is stupid. It is really people with more power than they ever should have been allowed to accrue in the first place having petty squabbles with each other that lead to thousands of people dying. You know what I mean? And I don't know if that's ever going to make for good TV, actually. I don't think you can show what politics really is, which is a bunch of, like, dumb asshole frat bros who get drunk and play golf together. That's never going to be a good show. You know what I mean? <laughs> Hey, it's me, the guy from CBS Westinghouse. You have to cut all this out. Stop it. Anyway, goodbye. Good luck with your show. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, no, I think I think those are all good points. I think maybe you brought up a good point about, but yeah, it is West Wing for communists, right? Because it's also written by liberals, right? It's also the product of its time. It's also a product of a Hollywood writer's room. It's a product of people that, for the most part, vote for Democrats. And they vote for, you know, you, you hear you hear about, you know, Iris Stephen Bear writing about past tense, although this episode isn't about past tense, but he talks about, hey, you know, back in 94, homelessness was a problem. And it was really striking. Fast forward 2021, or 2019, when the Deep Space Nine documentary, What We Left Behind, came out. I don't know if you guys watched that. It's really good because he talks about past tense he's like man we were so prophetic you know things haven't changed very much and they did a very serious segment where they flashed images like the border and trump and and you know skid row in la and there's like you know this is very we were prophetic in 94 we, we didn't intend to be and you know i love that documentary i like iris Stephen bear a lot but there's a little bit of self-congratulation there too of saying oh weren't we so smart weren't we so great whereas in no, reality like, yeah the tents in that fucking scene are just in the middle of the road nobody's up right. against any surf yeah. they're just like just put them down so no Oh, they look yeah. like it. I'm sorry. That's just a realism situation. It's but, cool right. that we successfully predicted dystopia. Yeah. And I think that's that's what, what liberals have when, although I think he kind of is kind of, you know, kind of straddles that line a little bit. But when you don't have that class analysis, when you don't have a, an, an examination of capitalism in, in crisis and it doesn't have a way out outside of social evolution, then you're constantly being surprised by events. You're just like, huh, how did this happen? I thought we were beyond this, right? So then you default back to, I think, moral appeals or saying like, aren't we better than this as humans? Aren't we better as, and it'll go into the, the nationalist route, like, are we better as Americans? Are we better than this? Whereas if you understood the forces at play, you could see like, this is what happens when none of these things You'd are- You'd be like, no, we're not better than this. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, are we better than this? Absolutely not. Or we wouldn't have ended up here, folks. Like, right. if humans were right. better than this, it wouldn't have happened. No, we're humans. We're really quite problematic as a species, actually. We do a lot of real questionable things. We're very irrational. And that's okay, actually. It's okay that we're like this. I think there is something beautiful to our chaos, but we have to build systems that actually incorporate the worst of us and anticipate the worst of us. Yeah, liberals will work endlessly for equality as long as, as the work only consists of navel-gazing. Or, like, as long as equality means making sure everybody else gets to catch up to slightly less than what they have. Yeah, and I think the other point, too, about, again, you know, power structures, again, this is about past tense, but it does really a little bit to bar association, too, is the what is the limitations of bargaining? What is the limitations of, you know, sitting down in a conference room, the captain's ready room? We love all those scenes. Don't get me wrong. Next Gen and, and all the other tracks where you sit down and talk about it. Diplomacy and all that kind of, that's all really good, actually. But sometimes, and by sometimes I mean a lot of the time, Star Trek substitutes that as if that is sufficient ideology in and of itself to say, we just need to believe in science with a capital S, we just need to believe in tolerance with a capital T, and inquiry, and diplomacy, and cooperation, all with capital letters. That in and of itself will get us to that better world. And that is the most naive view possible, because that's not yeah. how anything has happened throughout history. And that's how I think a lot of Star Trek, you can kind of see it actually has changed in tone 
over time. And it's actually a direct reflection on the crisis of society and the crisis of capitalism. In the 90s, with, with TNG ascendant, it was the quote-unquote end of history by Francis Fukuyama, right? The Soviet Union had fallen, right? The Berlin Wall had fallen. We are great. We are going to go to the stars in no time, right? And then what happened? The dot-com bubble happened and 9-11 happened. And then enter enterprise. Let's have, I like enterprise a lot, but it's also reactionary. Well, it was ways. a long road getting from there to here. Yeah, extremely. Right? And in a lot of ways, it still hasn't really shaken that because we still are in a period of crisis. You had the 08 recession. You had Occupy. Yeah, no, no, it's been my whole life. I have, yeah. 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 No. Yeah. But, as yeah. long as I have been alive, shit has been falling apart. It has been a long time, but you know our time is finally here with all these strikes oh, happening. <laughs> to relate the point, Will, you were just making to sort of what's happening right now on the left, right? I think we can see sort of a similar set of tensions even within leftists and within sort of socialists and communists as a movement, because there is still very much a group who believes all we really have to do is political education, you know. And there's there's a group that really seems to still believe that like the proletariat is a sleeping giant and not the proletariat is like an anthill that has been kicked over, right? And I think we have to remember the material conditions and consequences of labor struggle and class struggle, right? Like people in some ways on the far end on the other side of this, uh, there's people who are like, oh, let's do a revolution right now. And it's like, well, what are you going to do when they blockade your city? You know, what are you going to do when the Pinkertons show up and start shooting you until you go back to work? Like these are things that happened in the past. And I think it is foolish to expect that they could not happen again. Yeah, I think the truth is the proletariat is, in most cases, still working too hard to survive to really have much imagination about a different way of living, you know? Yeah, yeah. So to kind of relate this back to the the episode, one of the interesting things that happens in the course of this episode is that, you know, Cisco, as the commander of the station, he directs Odo not to interfere with the strikers as long as they still allow people who want to patronize Quarks to enter from the second level entrance. So there's there's the appearance of supporting the strike, but not really like we're still letting people like go in if they want to. And I, I get it. You know, he was in like a political kind of position there. But he did at one point, he exercised a point of leverage over quark where he said essentially like hey i'm tired of this i want it to go back to normal so um you're gonna have to hammer out agreement with your brother and quark's like i can't you know it's ferengi culture blah 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 blah. and cisco tells him like yeah it's fine i've not been charging you rent and you've been here for five years and uh we're gonna start charging you back rent if you don't actually so on the surface that sounds like oh like cisco's kind of got their back like he's telling him like go get the agreement (laughs) i'm just gonna but but what he was really doing was forcing an early end to the strike to get the most expedient agreement, not the best agreement for the workers. If they had been empowered to actually hold out as long as they needed to, they could have been like the bar could have been a co-op, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think for as much as like Star Trek shows us post scarcity, they don't really show a lot of mutual aid either. And I think one thing that is conspicuously missing from this episode is like the strike fund that you have to have to go on strike, right? Uh, The people bringing food to the picket that you have to have to maintain the picket, you know? Yeah. People having all their triangular pillows de-rezzed as they're evicted from their weird little compartments in deep space. I mean, right? Like this is the, these are the, yeah. And they don't, yeah. And they, I think, I think that is a big misstep that they didn't show something about that. I think also, like Will was saying, it kind of reflects who wrote the episode, right? Because for the people writing the episode, Marxism was a much more theoretical thing than material thing, I think. 
Well, not only did they not have a strike fund, but if you recall, like, and, and this was, uh, they were playing on Ferengi culture, but Rom was actually paying people strips of cold-pressed latinum to not go in the bar. So, like, not only were they not getting aid and financial support and, and you know, backing from their allies, like, he was literally paying people not to be customers. Yeah, absolutely. And also, at the end of the episode, what was the agreement that Quark was his line in the sand and actually Rom agreed to was dissolve the union. I'll give you sick leave. I'll give you paid sick leave. I'll give you raises, but you have to give up your union, is, which is in fact Jeffrey like- Jeffrey Combs is going to kill me. That's the biggest thing they actually want to eliminate. The pay raises or whatever, they can they can negotiate that. It's the organization they want to destroy. Again, shows you the inherent limitations of, of, of liberals writing this, of the show. And I think strike funds is another good point that you, that you brought up, Rachel. I think a lot of it had to do with, and this is the part of looking at how the labor movement has evolved and has, has continued to evolve uh, over time, is that it goes through these stages where it goes from early craft union, you know, guilds, and then it develops a parochialism where it's just like, you just care about the interests of your individual workplace, your business, your particular area, right? That your craft, your particular guild, right? Which on the one hand, you know, that's how you start, but there are clear limitations with that, right? Until transportation and logistics price your ability out and now you're competing right. with every other village in the world. Yeah, and everyone else has the same. And it has these very parochialism. The fact that it's narrow makes it incredibly weak, it means its leaders can be bought off, that means it can be defeated. You need a larger industrial sector-wide approach to organizing, right? Which from there, you then raise a question of not just sector-wide, why don't we actually run the actual facilities ourselves, or as opposed to just being a bargaining unit and bargaining with the bosses, we're the bosses. We elect our own bosses, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, and thus co-ops, right? Yeah, and then you link that on a larger level, right? So I think that's the, the limitations of all this types of, of, of this episode is it's written from a very narrow, like, they're just bar workers, right? As opposed to they're workers in Cork's bar. They're not just waiters, not just bartenders. They're all workers. And then the thing that they never ask, they never question is, aren't there other workers on the station too? Aren't there other workers on other facilities, other ships, other planets, right? And that's where Lower Decks kind of comes in because they kind of, especially this week's episode, by the way, which is called Wutch Dush, I think it is currently. Uh, Klingon for three ships, it raises the question of lower decks in other societies, in other ships. Are there lower decks there too? It's amazing. Like this is basically workers of all worlds unite in this this cartoon, but it's alluded to early on in Deep Space Nine where like, wait a minute, wouldn't this strike be incredibly even more potent and powerful if Quark's bar actually were able to be in solidarity with the engineering crews of, of Deep Space Nine, those that load the cargo bays, those that man the work bees? Yeah. What if like all of us decided to shut down, right? What if nobody could get their replicator fixed until this was over? Yeah. Yeah. All this, all the wrenches are broken, dude. I don't know what to tell you. I'm waiting on them to get in from the dock, but they said they don't have them yet. Ah. So something I just thought about that's kind of interesting when you think about what happened in Quark's Bar in particular is that we have some insight through some of the other series and a handful of episodes here and there. TNG and, and Enterprise both come to mind uh, where we encounter the Ferengi out doing other kinds of Enterprise. And in particular, there's that episode of Enterprise where the group of Ferengi come on, kind of take over the ship and they're, they're looting the ship. And the way that they've kind of divided it is, uh, of course, it's not equitable, but they have essentially 
essentially like divided the spoils by a percentage. And we see that also in the the Magnificent Ferengi, that episode of Deep Space Nine, where they're talking about the bounty that they're going to collect for um, for rescuing Quark's mom and how they're going to split that bounty up. Like, so they have this kind of culture of like, we're going to go go on an, on a venture together and we're going to split that you know, by some percentage, and it's going to be some degree of equitability. But that doesn't come into play at Quark's bar. Like, why wouldn't his brother have been a part owner of the bar? That doesn't make any sense, you know? I think part of that is that Rom is a big pushover, right? Well, yeah, but... I mean, it just—it's just interesting so that it's like that. Rom's robbed of all of his money by Nog's mother and is basically financially <laughs> dependent on Quark for. But yeah, no, I mean, I but, hear you. It just... But like that's—it it doesn't seem to match with the way that we know Ferengi operate in other kinds of contexts. So, it just occurred to me, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think that's if you're being very charitable, then you view this as just, you know, just the beginning of the beginning class consciousness, right? Knowing that the contradictions aren't resolved, that they will go into struggle yet again, right? And of course, it's an also an episode that needed to be wrapped up in 45 minutes. And it was supposed to be one of those kind of like one offs, right? And they need to wrap this thing up. Uh, in it's an kind episode, of a comedy episode. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing happens here. Which is the charm, which is why it's endlessly rewatchable. And I think a lot of these episodes are good that way, but also the limitations of that. You can kind of see like they're clearly pushing to resolve all this type of stuff. But in reality, it should have opened up all of this, right? And and but that's the thing. Star Trek is contradictory. But you use this contradictions to explain stuff to people and you use it to say, okay, the Federation in a lot of ways is a huge step forward. It would be a huge advancement to have that society right now, but it's still not perfect. So what do you do to go even further to resolve those contradictions on even on an even higher level right it shows you that type of worker organization self-organization being able yeah. to con- you know control things themselves you know that's what the soviets were in in, in the soviet union the, on the early days was the ability to run society you have drastic shortening of the workday in order to participate in the running of society that's the key prerequisite for workers democracy and workers control is that the workers need to have their own time they need to work like amy said if they're working 80 hours a week they're exhausted they can't actually run society we need to be paid more you need to work less and need to actually control the things actually produce all the things of value to actually have a say in these types of stuff otherwise it's very easy just to have a bureaucracy emerge or have you know people in privileged positions and all those types of stuff and i think one other thing is uh just understanding to relate it back to kind of the current struggles right now with the yatse strikes that's happening and also the, the nabisco strikes and all the other strikes you kind of see i think that's what you kind of can tell from the objective condition the objective conditions are so bad that even though the labor leadership and a lot of labor unions are very class collaborationists they don't want to rock the boat they just want to be better lobbyists right they they got a good thing going right despite the fact that a lot of the labor leadership the union leadership is holding back the workers say don't strike just you know we'll, we'll get you that 25 cent raise just you know let us let us lobby for you right despite all of that the conditions are so bad the workers themselves will just take matters into their own hands and it's that militancy which will at some point be reflected in the labor leadership saying, if you don't actually support us, we'll replace you, right? And it also poses the question of a larger mass organization for the workers to unite all of these struggles, right? Remember Bessemer, the Amazon warehouse from a few months ago, you know, uniting that struggle with all of these struggles requires a mass organization 
of the workers, workers party to kind of generalize all of these demands across every single individualized workplace, business, industry to make it into a generalizable demand and political program. And that's where you don't see right now. That's the lack of it. You just have you know, the Democrats, right? But in a, in a lot of ways, that's how you begin to lay the foundation for a general strike that's successful. Uh, and how you lead that to build connections with workers in other countries, in France, in India, who have undergone their ways of general strike. How do you link up with those workers, right? You kind of need an organization to do that, a mass workers party to do that. And right now, that's the missing ingredient because the anger is there. You see it reflected in Nabisco and these, uh, you know, movie workers and TV workers. They're just like, they're fed up. They're just like, you know, they can't take it anymore. But you can kind of see it every step of the way, like the reformist leadership or like the bourgeois laws kind of get in the way they're saying like, oh yeah, you can vote to authorize to hold an election to hold a strike as opposed to we're going on strike right now. We're voting with right. our feet and our actual mm-hmm, labor yeah. and the holding from it. You kind of see all these types of stuff like, oh, let us let us negotiate with the bosses. Let us go through the NLRB. Let's 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 figure out a way to do this let's in the right yes, way. Let's negotiate with the bosses, but let's bang a hammer <laughs> on the fucking table about I mean, like, yeah, yes. it is lackluster yes. at best. It is unwilling to push those put to actually stand at arm's length with those parties, which is how they negotiate everything that happens to them. Right. Well, you know, and earlier, Will, you were talking about how these hierarchies can be co-opted, right? How the leadership can be co-opted by these sort of petit bourgeois interests and, you know, the the sort of leadership class, as it were, or, you know, we call them professional managerial class now. And that includes like among union reps, right? I'm thinking of like IBEW, the electricians union. It's like the only electricians union basically. It's international and they have a no strike clause. So, you know, what the fuck's the fucking point then? Sorry. Yeah, right. And so and so in some ways, even the unions themselves can be corrupted past the point of usefulness, right? Because of the oh, hierarchies, yeah. the hierarchies themselves. And one thing that is conspicuously absent from all of Star Trek is non-hierarchical society, like a, a non-hierarchical version of this where people are actually empowered equally and equitably. Ahem. I'm sorry, I was just hanging out over in my Unimatrix thinking about the perfect political <laughs> platform and then I just thought I'd pop yes. over here. Well, that's the thing is all of anyway. them are presented as these like really scary shady things right it's like the the founders yeah. and like the Borg and like a couple of other hive minds that they come across along the way or like the Q right and like every single time that they sort of encounter these actual horizontalist societies they're like enemies well then a lot of them are objectively bad so that's understandable <laughs> like uh um... yeah but I mean you know but like they're not doing like chiapas yeah. right like they're not right, doing right, right. like successful versions of this anywhere and going back to your point earlier like co-ops are great we should do this we should start doing this it's called prefiguration it's good and so to your point rachel about how like you know unions can become corrupted like i i think all the time because i work with political candidates and of course political candidates like to try and get endorsements from unions and we run into this all the time where the union leadership wants to ally themselves with whoever the democratic incumbent is because that's the person that is currently in power who can do favors for them but the rank and file is not happy with that incumbent and they want to support someone different and they there's constant tension there so that happens all the time and it also plays out in these strike activities and it's the other thing i wanted to say is that like looking at the kinds of labor activities that are happening right now like i'm saying this as a person who has never had a union job i've never been a member of a union i've never had the opportunity to be a member of a union but it is so important that we all educate ourselves and that we become really effective allies to support striking workers because we cannot think i think about these amazon workers in particular there's been a lot of labor activity happening in amazon 
workers, but think about how hard those people work and how they are pushed to the bone. And not just them, but like the, the workers in the Nabisco plants, the workers in the Frito-Lay plants that are working 16-hour shifts, suicide shifts, they call them. Like all of these these different places that are rising up that are being like worked these insane schedules and just pushed to the absolute breaking point. They don't have the physical capacity to maintain the kinds of pressure that has to be put on and they need the support of the community. They need the allyship of, of people that are going to donate to strike funds that are going to make sure that they don't patronize these businesses um, and that, that we put the pressure on, you know, these institutions to actually like meaningfully change. And that is, I think, going to be a really important component in building more like worker solidarity for something that would eventually get us closer to a general strike. Yeah, I think on top of that, you need to, to, to push for things that would make it that would include all the workers, the ability to organize documented or undocumented, right? That should be a demand from the labor movement, right? We know, like Rachel said, and what Corey said, of course, the betrayal is inherent in reformism, right? And, you know, Trotsky, I'm a Trotsky, I'm a Leninist, so that's my tendency. And he had a great line saying that the, the labor leadership are just capital's lieutenants within the labor movement, right? If they couldn't destroy the labor movement, if they couldn't destroy the workers' ability to organize, they'll co-opt it. They'll just put agents in there to say, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll put the brakes on it. We'll put the brakes on this movement. And for us, as a Marxist, for me, I would say, you know, trade unionism is, Lenin wrote in left-wing communism, he said, the trade union is the first school of communism. It's the first step. It's the, it's the concession that capitalism is willing to give. And it's a huge concession and it has to be made, but then you have to, you have to transcend it. You have to go beyond it, but they have to use that tool in order to transcend it. And I think that's the pressure that will be brought upon that reactionary labor leadership if they don't actually uh you know accede to the demands they'll be replaced events will transpire to swamp them and overwhelm them but how do you go beyond trade unionism is is a question that has been laid out in the past uh, that's why we i think we look at certain things look at the history of struggle to say this is how you elevate people's consciousness you, you fight for everyone to be unionized across the board and then you keep fighting we take those reforms and then you you have an organization that instills the lessons of okay this is how we go further because when you think about it you know, people often say like, oh, revolutionaries, you know, you guys don't like compromises. You guys aren't built in the real world. You know, you don't like reforms, what have you. And I think that's nothing could be further from the truth in the sense that we do like compromises. There are compromises and there are compromises. Uh, a compromise when there is no other way out for it and you can preserve your forces is a good thing. Uh, a classic example of a good compromise is actually a contract that's won through a strike. It's basically the workers saying, we don't have the well, that's power negotiation. to That's a negotiation. Yeah. That's, a, that's a negotiated set of terms. You have compromised in a way. It is not, yeah, you've yeah. not given up. You have accepted what's possible. It's a different scenario than what- Exactly, and it's a compromise- Fundamentally different from capitulation. Yeah. Yes. It's recognizing that we can't, the workers can't be their own bosses right now. We can't elect our own bosses right now. So we'll take your whatever pay raise you'll give us and whatever better contract we do until the next time. Like that's a good compromise. That's a good negotiation from the idea that we'll be back. But, you know, as you've seen, we're not even there yet with many unions where they say you can't even strike. It's illegal. Or like, you know, public employees can't even be in a union because, that's, you know, they're a cabal. Well, because they might be able to do something. Teachers in Georgia even yeah. talk about going on strike. They lose their teaching licenses forever period they lose right. their pensions like the whole nine they get completely kicked out of the entire teaching ecosystem if they even talk about it which is a really big problem and yet even then you know we saw those wildcat strikes in west virginia it can be done and i i think one of the things that we're missing is that sort of hostility that understanding that the bosses are not our friends they're never gonna be our friends and they are fundamentally working against us because that's their job like their job is to get 
give us as little as possible in exchange for getting as much work and labor and production out of us as possible. And the second you lose sight of that, you know, you end up in one of those, oh, we're a family kind of places where, you know, they've got a beer fridge and you work until 10 o'clock every Friday. We need the hostilities back, folks. Well, the coming to the table with the hostility keeps you from making the compromise. It is knowing you will come back to that table again and again, right? Knowing you are going to continue to butt heads with this force rather than say, well, that was all we really wanted. Thanks anyway. Goodbye. Like it saves their all their lives because liquidator Brunt was going to phaser you and turn you into latinum, I guess. But whatever. Vague threats were made. But the whole point is, yeah, we can't upset the entire Star Trek universe with a 44 minute comedy version of, of our show just to get across for that that being said we love having you at our table and we're getting close to the end of our time but what we do usually do is have a dumb game because that's something i like to do that being said the side plot this is actually the a plot of this episode the b plot is that Worf doesn't like living on a starbase and goes to live on the defiant and that's just like the b plot of this already go nowhere as episode like it goes great places and wonderful like it is absolutely like the least wow we're having a spaceship flying you Woo, span of the galaxy. Nope, we work at a bar and then one guy doesn't like his apartment. So I would like to ask you, uh, although understanding that under the Klingon rules of acquisition, the only thing more dangerous than a question is an answer. I will ask you this. What is the song that, because Key brought Klingon opera on his little hollow sticks, right? What is the song you are putting on the whole Defiant as you like run naked through the Defiant at whatever time in the morning that you know everyone's asleep and you're like, yeah, finally a back on a damn spaceship we're like yeah you know, like he feels at home again he's just flopping both of his bridgy wieners dupping down the hallways listening to and this is where i would like you to bring your personal musical tastes and thoughts about what might sound superb in such a situation given klingon operas again already taken that's cop out it's already in the t- it's jammed in the tape deck i know use your imagination uh, the Internationale in 90 languages. They already have that on YouTube where they sing it all in multiple languages. That yes. was awesome. And they, there also is actually, I think, somewhere, someone translated Internationale into Klingon lyrics because of course they did. And that would what? be great. I think there's a website where there are the lyrics that are there. Almost certainly. I don't know if someone has actually sung it in Klingon, but it's certainly Oh no, 100% doable. someone has the Klingon. Yes, there's no way that this hasn't happened. Like, yeah. And as a brief side note, I feel like the Klingons are a great example of how like there's a lot of latent revolutionary potential there that's only just briefly touched upon but it's all there like the, the that society is just bursting at the seams in terms of struggle why wouldn't there be a klingon proletarian that emerges a klingon a peasant who's angry about just being abused by his feudal lord right like i'm just it, as good it, at stabbing guys as you are i should be allowed to do whatever yeah. And I think that's the interesting part that's only just touched upon is that all Klingons are warriors, all Romulans are shady, and all Ferengi are greedy. It's like the monoculture, monolith. But like, if you scratch the surface, maybe there's something that unites all of those cultures in reality when you think about it. And like, that's the wild thing to think about Star Trek is that, oh, it really is a mirror to our society right now. Just like, oh, we may have resolved it on Earth, but in the future, like, we would probably be trying to organize. We'd be having this conversation in the future, we have this conversation we're talking about organizing all the klingons all the romulans all the ferengi all the cardassians all the humans together and be like why are we fighting each other like why we are all being screwed uh why are we fighting each other so i think hear me out on this will you said you're a trotskyist let me pull you over you got one step left my friend to anarchy let's talk I can say the same thing to you. The best anarchists are won over to Leninism. The best anarchists 
I went through. Oh yeah, so, I mean, we're all the the big secret is all communists of all kinds are like a single sneeze away from each other. All of your steps are just the steps we're gonna take, but we're gonna take one more after that. Nah, I do have I have big thoughts about prefiguration. However, I did want to answer Paul's question for what uh what Worf would be listening to while running naked. So I just I want y'all to like just imagining Worf just jogging and just who can say where the road goes? Just dick swinging in slow motion. His hair sure. bouncing. Breaking out some oh. Enya. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, it's Enya. It's gonna be Enya. Slow he would love it too. Like he would actually love yes, it. Yes, he would love. I firmly believe he would. It's love the Enya. song of a warrior. Yeah, and it's so dramatic. It's perfect for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'd be listening to uh, Seven Forty Five Sticky by One Hundred Gex because that's what I listen to to get ready in the morning. Good. I don't have a favorite kind of music anymore. Uh, it's been so long since I've actually like listened to new music. I would say that uh, if it was me, I'm going to do a throwback to one of our earliest episodes of the pod. And I'd say I'm probably going to be jamming out to some Journey. Just because Journey sounds really good when Hell you crank yeah. it all the way up. Don't stop believing, Corey. Absolutely. I never stop believing. But I think if it was Worf, I, I can't do any better than Inya. I think that I think you're right on with that one, Rachel. It's a curse. Mine would be Coheed and Cambria because I never stop being freakishly obsessed with weird neurodivergent stuff. <laughs> I think that's about that's about the episode, isn't it? I mean, Ryan, <laughs> give us that old time rock and roll as Worf slides on his socks past uh, past you in right. the hallway. And um, let's talk about where people can find us and what they want to see. Will? Yeah, no, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Boominator. My display name is Star Trek Communist. You can find me on Instagram, too, at, at Proletarian Trek. And yeah, just talking all things Star Trek, really loving all the new Star Trek that's coming and obviously talking about the wave of class struggle that's happening right now. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at CM Archibald, and I'm usually talking about Trek and politics and sometimes cats. Oh, I'm, I'm at a hashtag subtext, and I'm going to start talking about bricks more because that's my going to be like my old man birding hobby is bricks because that fucking they fucking rule. They're made out of mud. You can make them anywhere. It's just hot mud and a rectangle, and you stack them up. It's very, it's We way- do have that Georgia clay, too. I'm Amy Hassel. You can find me on Twitter. It's a hassel on Twitter. Uh, what, two S's, four A's? A. I don't know. It's well, your name. That's... you got to tell us how to spell it. <laughs> it's all. We, we'll read. You know us. That has been a lot of fun. Will, do you have anything to tell anyone before we leave? Workers of all worlds unite. You know, nothing to lose but your plasma manifold scrubbing duty. Because when you think about it, they probably have lower decks on every single ship. And they're all doing the same menial job. And when, in reality, they probably shouldn't, right? Or they probably should figure out a way to get someone else to do it and not just them all the time. Or just fucking automate it. Solidarity, here, here. Or as we like to say around here, space the rich. Yes. <laughs> and before we log off, I, yes, I gotta do our whole oh. spiel. Uh, not Safe for Wonks is dead. Long live Not Safe Media. Uh, we have Sentai Truther Club, Hot Girl Agenda, and of course this, Gay-Based Communism. I am Rachel Khan. You can find me now that the fuzz is off my back and things have cooled off a little bit at Hegelian vs. Predator on Twitter. Uh, and oh, Reach shit. Rachel Khan everywhere else. Yeah, I, I went back to my roots now that, you know, they're not actively looking for that screen name to, like, Block me again. And yeah, I'm back there. And I'm everywhere else at Reach Rachel Khan. If you want to follow the show, you can go to Gay Spacecast on Twitter. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being with us, Will. Face the rich. Face the rich. We love having you on, Will. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me back, as always. So, anytime. Yeah. Yeah.
Love y'all. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode. This is Corey, and I wanted to give you a quick update about the IATSE strike as of this recording, which is October 19th. So a few days ago, union leadership reached a tentative agreement that allowed studio executives to avert the strike that was supposed to start this week. That deal has not yet been accepted by membership, however. Members will vote on the contract in each of their locals where they use an electoral college-style system. That means that if a simple majority of the members at each local vote in favor of the deal, the new contract will be accepted, even if close to half of the members are actually opposed to the terms. What we're hearing from a lot of the rank and file is that the deal that they've been offered is not good enough, and frankly, we agree. So this strike may still be happening, and the vote may still be a few weeks away. Gay-based communism stands firmly in solidarity with IATSE members and striking workers everywhere. We believe labor is entitled to all it creates. These workers are producing hundreds of billions of dollars in entertainment products that we all enjoy. They work 18-hour days days for peanuts while executives walk off with millions. These workers deserve higher wages, good pensions, safe working conditions, rest, dignity, and so much more. Some ways that you can show your solidarity are to follow the IATSE account on Twitter. You can also follow the account IA underscore stories. That's an account that's sharing stories from the union members and uh, talking about their experiences and why this union action is so important. You can also follow the hashtag IATSE solidarity that's a great way to keep up with the latest developments. If you live in a city where productions are taking place, check with local chapters for any protests you can join or any strike funds you can donate to. And if the strike does go forward, be prepared to show your solidarity by boycotting all film and television entertainment, including canceling your subscriptions to streaming services until they get the deal that they deserve. While we wait to see what happens with the contract, we're going to be shuffling around our content a little bit. There may be a few weeks where we don't post new episodes as we reconfigure things. We want to keep producing great content content for you all, but we also don't want to encourage activity like streaming that may be counter to the objectives of the strike if the strike goes forward. So thanks for your patience as we work through all of that, and also thank you for supporting this show and for dreaming about utopian futures with us. Space the rich, everybody.